evening, Los Angeles, and welcome back to the Apologetics.com radio program. My name is Jason Gallagher, and I'm in studio tonight with the good doctor, Eddie Norga. Eddie, how you doing, man? I'm here. I'm awake. Are you awake? Yes. All right. Got some coffee earlier. We are ready to go. Apologetics.com. We've been on the air here Friday nights at midnight, challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe, and we are going to be continuing that uh, ministry tonight as we discuss the topic of presuppositional apologetics, in particular uh, the Trinity and the triune God and how the Trinity impacts our imp- apologetic endeavor. And if you've been tuning in for the last uh, few months, we have been discussing presuppositional apologetics and some uh, topics related to that, such as the myth of neutrality, uh, pushing the antithesis. And so we'll be kind of reviewing a little bit some of those things tonight. Um, But mainly we want to remind you guys that uh, we are a listener-supported ministry. We are not paid to be here. We're all volunteers. We just love to come on the air and encourage you guys in the Word of God and defending the faith and giving a reason for the hope that you have within you. And um, this show in particular tonight is sponsored by Branch of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That is the church I attend. I'm a deacon there, and Eddie is also a member in good standing at that church. We have services in person at 9.30 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. And we love apologetics, and we have time for a question and answer every week where we get to challenge our pastor, ask him all sorts of questions uh, about life and doctrine and theology. Uh, So we'd love for you to join us, branchofhope.org. You could find us on Facebook, and, um, you know, let us know if you're going to come visit. We'll roll the red carpet out. If you want to reach me uh, at apologetics.com, you could reach me, jason at apologetics.com. Ask me any sort of questions you might have about the show, about content, about uh, topics you'd like us to cover, or just uh, questions in general you might have about the Christian faith or, um, you know, challenges. If you're an unbeliever and you'd like to have a conversation, that would be great. Um, I'm actually going to be engaging in a conversation uh, later this month, February 28th. It's a Sunday in the afternoon. Going to be having a, a cordial conversation with uh, Mr. Tom Jump. I don't know if any of the listeners out there are familiar with Tom Jump, but he is a fairly prolific kind of YouTube atheist personality who releases at least one video per week, maybe more on average. And he has all sorts of conversations with Christians or uh, people that believe in other religions. And he is an anti-theist, and we're going to be having a a friendly conversation um, in a couple weeks. So I encourage you guys to tune into that. We'll probably be posting that or hosting that on our Facebook page and, um, you know, maybe a live stream or, or obviously sharing it after the fact. Uh, so yeah, if you could be praying for that, uh, just an opportunity to get the Word of God out and hopefully, um, you know, challenge thinkers to believe. That's part of what we do at apologetics.com. Um, tonight's show uh, the Trinity and presuppositional apologetics. So uh, I wanted to just jump into that topic, but before we do, I do want to give us uh, give you guys our number. We really exist for you guys, our listeners. We love to engage with you and interact with you and answer any questions you guys have in apologetics. Uh, you could reach us at triple eight 
KKLA. That's 888-995-5552. So the good doctor, Eddie Norga. Um, so let's, you know, we did a show two months ago, I believe, on presuppositional apologetics, kind of unpacking um, the the basic theology kind of behind presuppositional apologetics and how it kind of works itself out in our lives in a very, you know, regular and practical way. Um, so let's briefly unpack and define, you know, what is meant by a presupposition, what is presuppositional apologetics kind of all about? So yeah, presupp- a presupposition isn't just an assumption, it's a foundational assumption at the network of our beliefs uh, on which we base all of our other beliefs. So you might think that something to the effect of uh, baseball is good, so uh, that would be your foundational belief and you might go to baseball games, you might uh, start up a baseball team, you might teach it to kids, uh, you know, that all these other beliefs are based upon the idea that baseball has some inherent good in it. And I think it does. It's a pretty fun sport. Yeah, uh, I like baseball. <laughs> I was never very good at it. Though. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so there's another characteristic to presuppositions. There's frequently uh, a lot of foundational beliefs that we have are presupposed in and they're true whether you assert them or negate them. What do I mean by mm. that? You know, that that uh, an example would be that uh, you could either assert that the laws of logic are valid and useful and that they exist, or you can say that the laws of logic are not valid, they're not useful and they don't exist. Well, in order to argue for that, you would have to presuppose the laws of logic in order to make your argument that the laws of logic are not valid or exist. Hmm. Same thing goes for truth. You can say there's, you know, truth exists, or absolute truth exists, and then you can say absolute truth does not exist, and you'd have to ask yourself, well, is that absolutely true? You all heard those before. Hmm. They're pretty straightforward. So this area, there are areas within our thinking that have to be true whether we assert them or negate them. And some part of presuppositional apologetics uh, tries to look at those areas and uh, and and uh, utilize them to help come to an understanding of the truth. Amen. Yeah. Yes. Foundational of first importance. Those things by which other things are interpreted. Right. That's another another way of thinking about these things. Um, you might hear of you know they are like glasses that everybody is wearing and. You know, somebody's wearing blue glasses and somebody's wearing red glasses and everything they see is going to have a blue tint to it because of the glasses they're wearing. Um, If you look at the world from a materialistic perspective, right, this idea that all that exists is the material, you are going to look at something such as the resurrection completely differently than someone who has a supernatural belief system, right? Who believes, yes, there are things that are material, but there's also a supernatural, immaterial world um, that exists and is as real as the physical world, right? Um, they will they will look at something like a resurrection completely differently, right? So it has a lot to do with the context of our beliefs, you know, mm-hmm. how we contextualize the things that we hear, we see, you know, we're, you know, how do they fit into our overall worldview, and along with the presuppositional apologetic uh, approach is the understanding that everybody has a worldview, that everybody mm-hmm. makes faith-based decisions about what exists, what's right and wrong, and how they justify their knowledge of those things. 
So there are people uh, out there who say people of faith and people not of faith. Everyone is a person of faith. In the absence of exhaustive knowledge, we all make faith-based commitments about what exists, what's right and wrong, and how we understand or how we justify our knowledge of those things. Okay. And I think as we unpack this, we'll see that... uh, you know, the Christian worldview has a starting point, God, namely the triune God. And it's from that starting point, God exists, God has created the world, created the universe. God has spoken to us through his word and special revelation. He's also spoken to us through creation, through natural or general revelation. And through God's revelation to us, we then begin to form a framework for what exists, what is right and wrong, how we should live, right, where we are going. Um, And how do we know? We know because the triune God has revealed those things to us. Right. And he's done that in a matter that demonstrates his transcendence. You know, as we study the Bible, Mm -hmm. we appreciate an unprecedented unity of statement you know, the, you know, the Bible's written by 44 different authors over a 1,500-year period approximately, mm-hmm. and yet if it just sends this integrated, unified message. Uh, at the same time, we also see within the Bible the understanding of things before they were understood, you know, that mm-hmm. in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth, you know, understands that the universe began to exist, and it includes the five things that science likes to study, space, time, matter, action, and forces. So there's this incredible wisdom, and you can go through Mm -hmm. the Bible and uh, see that there are many transcendent properties. One of the most is is prophecy, you know, that the Bible Mm -hmm. predicts uh, things before they happen. And God himself says in the Bible in Isaiah, he talks about, you know, I'm the Lord your God, who declares the end from the beginning, who mm-hmm. says, who tells you things before they occur. This is how I am demonstrating that I am transcendent. Yeah, just one of the many ways, right? Yes. Um, there are multiple ways that God, God's word demonstrates itself to be transcendent, um, which is an important property um, of God and his triunity, right? This idea that he is... Uh, both transcendent and imminent, right? He he is high above us, but he's also here with us right now. You know, his spirit dwells in us. You know, he's also om, omnipresent, right? God is everywhere, right? There is nothing uh, that God, that happens uh, apart from God's knowledge, right? And his sight. Um, and yeah, the whole idea of imminence is that, you know, and the word became flesh, and dwelt well, among us, you know that that, yeah. and we beheld his glory. Emmanuel. from John chapter one, you know that, that you know that God Himself mm-hmm. took on flesh, so that we could see His exact representation and the radiance of glory of His glory from Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter one, mm-hmm. and so that He could speak to us in a most clear way. And the speech is not is not limited to verbal speech, but it's the speech that also includes his actions. Mm -hmm. And at the center of his action was humbling himself to take on flesh and uh, taking on the the form of a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, this whole transcendence and imminence and uh, different kind of attributes of God, so to speak, might seem just like a theological discussion that we're having, 
right? It's very deep philosophical. It's, it might seem very deep theological, philosophical, and so forth. But in reality, what one of the things that we want to do tonight is show how this really, uh, you know, impacts us in our everyday life. Whether we're talking about something as fundamental or universal as like the law of gravity, which is, you know, part of our everyday existence, right? Um, Or something like love and goodness and morality and how we should treat our neighbor. So we're going to try to be unpacking some of that tonight and showing why the triune God of Scripture makes sense of these things and also showing how, let's say, a naturalistic, materialistic, uh, time plus chance kind of worldview cannot. Neither can, say, a Unitarian worldview, this idea of God being um, just a, a one one unity God, not a trinity God, or let's say a pantheistic worldview, right? We want to kind of show you why when you push these worldviews to their logical conclusion, they they wind up getting reduced to absurdity, um, and they can't make sense of these basic things like love, goodness, truth, the law of gravity, science, you know, pretty much everything, you know, predication, language, communication, so on and so forth. Um, But we want to do it in such a way that hopefully um, makes sense and seems practical. We don't want, you know, some esoteric just kind of philosophical way to argue with people. You know, that's one thing I've noticed a lot as I've been watching a lot of these conversations with Tom Jump online. You know, people will try to come at conversations with him from so many different angles, right? But at the end of the day, when I watch these hour-long conversations or whatever they are, they they haven't produced a whole lot of fruit, it seems like. You know, it's just been these back-and-forth discussions and they might just talk about one very esoteric thing, such as, you know, sentences and propositions and for an hour, and they don't really get to, say, the gospel, right? And I want to unpack that a little bit, um, Eddie. You know, what is, you know, what is the main goal of our apologetic? Are we just here to kind of teach people arguments, you know, that they can go you know, argue with their neighbors or friends or family or, you know, what's what's at the base of this? What, well, what should our aim be? It's, it's kind know? of a twofold goal. You know, one of them is to, um, you know, explore, help the unbeliever explore their worldview mm-hmm. and help them understand that that uh, their worldview uh, is 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 very limited. And mm-hmm. that they're frequently borrowing from the Christian worldview, and then the other part of it is to share our worldview, so that that uh, you know when we talk about the triune God of Scripture, we're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that includes and entails the gospel itself, the good news, mm-hmm. you know that that uh, that the gospel came here, and in it is the power of God to restore things to the way they ought to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that there is salvation, that there is a there is a cure for this disease that has a hundred percent mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the disease of sin, mm-hmm. you know, that there is a cure for it. Uh, and that uh, uh, that the first fruit of that was the res- resurrection of Christ from the dead. And that that uh, that resurrection 
is is a symbol to us and a sign to us that he has conquered death mm-hmm. uh, and that he has the strength and ability to not only raise himself from the dead, which he did in conjunction with the Father and the Spirit, uh, that he will also raise us from the dead. And so we have this promise Amen. of eternal salvation. And that's not limited to that. That's an incredible thing, but it's also about the restoration of all things on earth as they are in heaven. So when we mm-hmm. play the Lord's Prayer, you know, we, we ask for that God's kingdom would come, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it provides a foundation for some of these things that we're going to talk about, um, you know, about love, unity, goodness, and those types of things. Amen. I wanted to just come to a scripture here. I think Romans 1 is a good backdrop for a lot of this conversation and discussion. Um, Romans 1, verse, starting in verse 18, says this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, God They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, I mean, this kind of of lays it all out there, right? That men know God, right? says they have been clearly, God has been clearly seeing, being understood through the things that have been made, through, that means through creation, through what is around us, right, Uh, the world, so that they are without excuse. It says uh, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And it says men suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And when they do that, it says their hearts became dark, um, and they exchanged the glory of God for these images of man and birds and animals and creeping things. So in, in other words, they have worshipped the creature rather than the creator, right? And this is kind of what we're doing. We, we were talking about this, right? That we are simply trying to press home the fact that they already know God, right? They're living in his world. Um, They've kind of built this house of cards, so to speak, that they claim to live inside, but they actually live in God's world, right? They've actually known the God of Scripture, uh, who speaks both in natural and special revelation, and through their life, they have trampled on him. You know, they haven't glorified him. Um, they've lived in his world. They've breathed his air um, without ever giving him glory or honor or praise. And the end of our presuppositional argument is that the person we are speaking to is profoundly guilty of sin against God, just as guilty as we are, right? Yet by the grace of God, we have come to that realization and turn to God for 
for life and for forgiveness and um and even that turn is a gift from God. Even that you know, turn is a know, gift from God. From Ephesians 2, it says we're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. It's a gift, it's a gift from God, yeah. not of ourselves, that anyone should boast. You know, so, Absolutely. So even with the faith that we have, we have to thank God that he's created the circumstances by which we came to faith. Absolutely. And that typically includes the use of someone else coming and sharing the word of God with us, yeah. which is the goal of our apologetic That's right. encounter is to ultimately share God, the word of God, because in that word of God is the power of God, that faith mm-hmm. comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God, and that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Absolutely. And this God whom we are declaring, again, as Eddie mentioned, the God who they are sinning against, who have sinned against, is the same God who sent his eternal son, right, into the world to live and to die for us. And by, and then together they send the Holy Spirit to be with us, right, to open the hearts of people who are otherwise his mortal enemies, right, so that they can receive him and believe on him and uh, be reconciled to him. So within this argument, we can never lose sight of the fact that, you know, we want to show people that they know God, they've denied him, because they've denied him, they are guilty, but that God in his great love sent his son and his spirit, the triune God, to rescue us rebels, right? Re- our rebellious, you know, sinful hearts, like God came and chased us down. And like Eddie said, by grace through faith, it's a gift that we have been saved. And um, that's the goal of our apologetic. That is the um and so you might be asking, where do we get this idea of the Trinity? Is this something that we made up, mm-hmm. uh, or is this something that man made up? And the doctrine of the Trinity— You told me about it. Is, I just believe what Eddie yeah, says. Yeah, it's not like you can look at one verse in the Bible and go, oh, here we go, you know, God is, you know, trying God. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a doctrine or teaching or set of beliefs mm-hmm. that is drawn from all of Scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's present at the creation, you mm-hmm. know, in the beginning— God created the heavens and the earth, yep. and the Spirit of God hovered over the, you know, the world was out form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over, um, you know, over the creation, and then God said, so you hear, you see God, the Father, you see the Spirit of God, and you see the Word of God all present mm-hmm. and active in the power of creation. Right. And then later you see different types of uh, of allusions to God in terms of there is a pluralistic, we have made man in our image. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then later in the great Shema, we see that the Lord our God is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that word one is the same word that's used to describe when the two became one flesh. So it refers to a compound unity. And even the terms that are used, the Lord, Yahweh, and Elohim speak to both unity and diversity, that Elohim is plural more than two. Uh, so that so that uh, <clears throat> so that verse there includes both unity and diversity, saying it's a compound unity. You know that our God is one and three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important to, as we unpack the Trinity just a little bit, right? Um, that 
the listeners understand that God is God, right? And that we simply stand in awe of who he is, right? And we know, we understand that we can know God, we can know him truly, we can know him deeply, right? But we will never know him completely or exhaustively because he is the infinite God, right? Um, and, you know, John seventeen three says, you know, this is eternal life that you know Jesus Christ, right? The one true God whom you have sent, right? Whom the Father has sent. And so eternal life is literally knowing God. Like we are going to spend eternity knowing God and unpacking all there is, you know, uh, never being able to plumb the, the depths. And that knowing is an applied knowing, you know, that, that the knowing mm. the God of Scripture is understanding that every aspect of life and looking at every aspect of life and living every aspect of life in a covenant relationship with God. Amen. Yeah, and that kind of gets us uh, moving a little towards, um, you know, the context of the Trinity, right? And I think part of the, the context involves this idea that we are in covenant with God, um, you know, that this isn't just, um, God doesn't exist in, in, like, in a vacuum, right? There is a, there is a context to the entire world um, that God has created for us, right? Um, and, you know, one, one theologian kind <clears> of <throat> puts it in a, a helpful way that, you know, if, if you were trying to give someone a directions on a map to your grandma's house, right, you need a context to that. You need to have a map, and you need to show them where your grandma's house is, where your house is. Otherwise, there's no way to make sense of, you know, how to get from my house to grandma's house. And uh, for us, God is that context of everything in reality. And it's because he's a triune God, it's a personal context, right, which helps us relate to him, to his creation, and uh, to the world around us, to the created order uh, around us. And it's all part of God's covenantal relationship that he has with himself and then also with his people. So uh, we have some music, I hear. So we are coming up on the edge of a break. Uh, This is Jason Gallagher with Apologetics.com discussing the Trinity and presuppositional apologetics. And we'll be right back after these quick messages. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. 
All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Welcome back, Los Angeles, to the second half of the Apologetics.com radio show, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Thank you so much for that intro music. That is from our good buddy, Dennis the Menace Alvey, who is a regular contributor here on the Apologetics.com radio show. He is a, uh, you know, a witty and talented musician, and we love when he joins us here on Apologetics.com. He'll probably be in studio uh, next month, but the music, the intro, the outro music is courtesy of him. He spent some time putting those together, and hopefully we'll be using those more on our shows to kind of uh, give us a little bit more cohesiveness from week to week, you know, a little bit uh, of the common sound. Um, but anyways, thanks, Dennis. for Common sound in many shows. That sounds Trinitarian. That's right. The one of the many, <laughs> which we haven't even really talked about yet, but... Um, we could unpack that a little bit. Uh, the one and the many. Another uh, beautiful, uh, cohesive, coherent thing that makes reality. So, what are some sense. like real down to earth uh, examples of how the one and the many um, affect our lives? I mean, we talked a little bit about uh, the law of gravity. You know that you know yep. we. We have these many instances where we've experienced gravity. We have a, a tennis ball, we let go of it, drops to the ground. We have a lead ball, we let go of it, it drops to the ground. And it drops to the ground in a very consistent way, and it, it seems to occur the same way whether it's in uh, Los Angeles or whether it's in New York, uh, that, uh, that, that there's different differences between the characteristics, but that they all can be somehow unified by some conceptual mathematical idea that ex that that uh, explains or de uh, uh, defines what it describes what it is that we that we see. We actually don't have a very good explanation for gravity, but we have a very good well, we have a good uh, uh, explanation. Mm -hmm. Secular science doesn't have a good explanation for gravity. Mm -hmm. They can just describe it awfully well. Uh, and that that description exists in a conceptual way or in a way that is of a mind. So the laws of gravity that apply to every instance of gravity that we experience are are exists in a conceptual way, and they can be expressed in uh, propositions. Mm -hmm. They can be expressed mathematically in various formulas. Mm -hmm. uh, and they apply to many instances. So again, here's a very down-to-earth thing that, you know, that the same law of gravity, which is a conceptual, transcendent uh, thing of a mind, mm -hmm. um, uh, has some relationship somehow to every instance of a ball falling. Exactly. And, you know, I think maybe one way to highlight why... Uh, the triune God is important is to maybe discuss how um, worldviews that kind of start outside of that can't seem to make sense of this. Um, you know, we speak of the personal triune God, right, who is in himself perfect and absolutely overlapping and <laughs> interpenetrating of three persons in one being, right? That's the Trinity. And he resides above reality, Right, he is over the creation, right? He is actually created. He's over 
all material existence as we know it, and he made them both, right? Neither um, the material world or the ideal world, right? That's kind of what Eddie's getting at here, um, is, is ultimate, right? They're both part of God's creation. And, you know, part of the problem of philosophy, I think, is they always make one or the other. They try to make one or the other the ultimate, right? And you always wind up in some sort of weird, uh, contradictory kind of um, outcome. Um, They don't just collide, and they don't just overlap by chance, right? God made both of them, and he's the only one as an absolutely self-knowing, self-sufficient being. He's the only one that can speak with authority uh, to the effect that... uh, the two, the ideal and the material, make any contact at all, right? So, um, you know, Eddie's talking about uh, gravity, right? There is, you know, there's this way in which gravity actually just makes a real physical contact with each and every one of us, right, in an individual way, right? There is material, physical reality, uh, coming onto us, but then there's this law of gravity, this which is this uh, conceptual. It's this conceptual backdrop. It's like this. It's this f- invisible framework that exists in the entire universe that every single thing is beholden to. Right? You throw a ball, you drop a rock, you drop an egg on the floor, and it cracks. That's the law of gravity having dominion over that egg, right? The things of the creation. The things of the creation. So there's this material contact, right? At the same time as this ideal conceptual law of gravity. And that is kind of how this idea of the one and the many, you know, uh, come together. And God makes perfect sense of, of all of it, right? Because he's created the law of gravity. God is, God is speaking forth, um, you know, by him and through him, all things were created. He spoke things into existence, right? Yeah, and one way that Vern Poitras puts it is that within the triune God of, of Scripture are the foundational resources to make mm. sense of, you know, these one of the many types of things, and we're going to be talking about several of them, but, you know, you know the, these one of the many things that we do routinely, that you do, that children do, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we do automatically. So when the Bible says we know God, you know, we see and we experience and we deal with, you know, there's one law that applies to many people. When people go to legislate, they try and make one law, and it's supposed to apply to a variety of different situations. Right. Uh, you know, like, you know, you uh, you can't eat out or you can't eat inside, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, so it's supposed to apply to all these situations and should be applied equally amongst all the people that the law applies to or within the law's jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly do that. Even when we mm-hmm. say that, that, uh, that Daffy is a duck, you know, we're, con- we're, we're connecting this particular duck named Daffy with the idea of duckness. Yeah. And, you know, people will either say that Daffy, the individual is the ultimate or the concept is the ultimate, but within trying God, there is, equal ultimacy between the one and the many. I would say neither of them are ultimate, right? They're just the way God has created things, right? Right. God, well, is, God is the ultimate. Yeah. F- right. Philosophically, 
you know, like you mentioned, you know, Aristotle yeah. tend to to give ultimacy to the particulars, whereas right. Plato gave ultimacy to the ideals, you right. know, to the universals. When in reality, there's not one above the other, right? Right. That they both reflect you know, God who who created them. And, um, and so, you know, that that's kind of just like one down-to-earth example is the law of gravity. It's very powerful. It's mm-hmm. ubiquitous. It's found everywhere. It's consistent. It's conceptual. Uh, it can be expressed in language or propositions. Right. It can be expressed mathematically. And right. we didn't invent these laws. Correct. They existed before we, you know, they existed in these ways before we began to understand them. Correct. You know, that we began to understand them. And we also understand that they're they're reliable, you know, and in a in a world, a chance world, you know, you know, there there's nothing that's ultimately reliable. You know, chance world, mm-hmm. you know, tomorrow could be completely different. You know, you could draw right. you could drop your lead ball and it could hit your ceiling. Right. Um, you know, because you know, some other chance thing happens. So we mm-hmm. have this uniformity of nature that's given to us from God in uh, Genesis chapter eight, I believe. I was just gonna go there. Um But yeah, you know, just to kinda just to kind of piggyback on a lot of what you're saying. Um you know, another way to to look at this and to kind of show how other worldviews can't really make sense of something as simple as the law of gravity, as Eddie was saying, you know, how do we come to discover the law of gravity, right? We we basically discovered it through what we call the scientific method, right, which uh, presupposes a few things, right? It, it assumes a certain things to be true. One of them is the fact that the future will be like the past, right? Um, what we do in the scientific lab today, right, over and over and over until we develop a law, like it repeats itself so accurately um, and so consistently that you basically turn it into a law. You could describe it with some mathematical equation. Well, if you're doing that today in the lab, who's to say it's going to work tomorrow? Well, in God's world, right, when he has said, that he is going to uphold, you know, all creation by the power of his word. And we know that God himself is, you know, he cannot lie. He cannot, uh, he cannot be unfaithful, right? He will do what he says. He will keep his promises. We can trust that, you know, rain, you know, snow, sun, the sun rising, the sun setting, you know, winter, snow, you know, all the four seasons, we could expect those to continue to uh, continue on just like God said they would. So we we have a basis for doing science and then making predictions about the future. Um, in a material world where it's based on time and chance, right? You you know you're basically undermining one of your main presuppositions, right? That uh, the world is just created by time and chance. Well, you know, well tomorrow, <laughs> what's to say that that chance isn't just going to keep changing things in order to. Uh, you know, keep this whole uh, worldview going, right? This evolutionary change over time kind of worldview going, right? Um, so an atheist or a materialist who loves to quote science and point to science as their, you know, favorite thing in the world, science is actually something that, um, you know, goes against their their basic worldview, their basic presuppositions. Their basic commitments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the I think you mentioned, you know, it's the prediction of stability in a changing world, 
mm-hmm. is a contradiction. Mm-hmm. And I've said many times that, you know, if we find our worldview leading to something that is contradictory, you know, if we desire to live in a rational and coherent way, we should abandon that worldview because we should not want to live in a manner that leads to uh, regular and consistent contradictions in our thinking or in our way of life, right? So we should abandon that and, you know, we should turn to the worldview, the God who can allow us to make sense of things, right? Who can allow us to reason um, in a coherent manner, right? And this idea of the one of the many, and and we're going to move on to talk about goodness, you know? So back in the time of Plato, they were wondering, well, where is this goodness? Is it something outside of the God that God has to conform himself to? So it creates this other impersonal category, uh, you know, that exists that somehow God needs to conform to. So within the triune God, just as the idea of of um, equality with, with both ultimacy, uh, with both um, unity and diversity, that there's equal ultimacy mm-hmm. between unity and diversity within the triune God, that that same thing applies to other things, you know, that that exists within God. It's not something that exists outside of God. And as we move on to goodness, goodness is a characteristic of God's personality. It's not something outside of God that he needs to conform himself to, you know, that the, the and that goodness is a relational goodness and it's manifests mm-hmm. itself in another term that's thrown around a lot. And that is love. Uh, so, so God's goodness and God's love is not something that stands outside that he needs to conform himself to. It's part of who he is. So that's the idea is that the triune God of scripture is absolute personality, that, that these ideas of goodness and love are personal constructs. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit more, right? Um, no, in, uh, I believe it's Poitras' book on knowing God and the Trinity. Um, him and John Frame have developed a lot of uh, very cool ways and, you know, unique ways of looking at the world around us, you know, perspectives, you know, John Frame's perspectivalism, right? And uh, what they call triads, right? These, these threes that exist in, in creation, in, in the world, and one of the triads that they speak of is triadic love, right? And I just love the way that they they kind of uh, unpack this. You know, they also talk about, I think, you know, logic and language and math. You know, they have these kind of triadic properties to them. But, um, you know, when it comes to triadic love, um, one kind of reasoning is, you know, uh, God is personal, right? One a- one aspect of being personal is that God is loving, right? In loving, there is a lover, right? There is a beloved, and there is the exercise of love between the two. So when these three are taken together, they are complete, right? We do not need a fourth um, to make it complete, but we do need three. Two would be insufficient, Right, you'd have a lover and a beloved, but you'd have no exercise of love between the two. And so, according to this analogy, God the Father is the lover, God the Son is the beloved, and God the Holy Spirit dynamically expresses the love binding them. And um, if we read John three, 
Do you have John 3 handy in here? I could look it up. I think it's there. here in my Bible somewhere. John 3, 34 to 35 says, um, for, whom, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And so, so when it comes to, you know, just simply uh, the fact of love, you can see that it has its basis in God and in the fact that God is a triune God, right? Um, you know, St. Augustine, uh, Jonathan Edwards, each in their own way used uh, some similar reasoning to also confirm the tripersonal nature of God. Um, and so something as basic as that, you know, um, in lo- you know, what we could show, maybe unpack a little bit how uh, other worldviews can't make sense of, of love, right? Yeah, love, love implies a goal, you know, that, mm. you know, you love someone. It is, is it, it is a feeling. It is, it is, it is uh, something that we say, but it also there is some goal to love, and that is that you would want what's best for that individual, and that you would want that best mm. to go on forever. You know, that you mm-hmm. would want the best circumstances for them to go on forever. So love itself implies some standard of good and some mm-hmm. understanding of what's good. And mm-hmm. for in order for the word good to make sense, it have to it has to be conformed to some objective personal standard. And so that objective personal standard lives within God. You know, that God is good. Uh, and he's he's absolute personality in that in and of himself in his triumph nature goodness is expressed as is love and just as the bible also says mm-hmm. that this is the love of god that you keep his commandments that mm-hmm. god's commands are the means by which we ex- we love ourselves love our, love god and love our neighbor and in that mm-hmm. we do the best thing for ourselves you know by loving god and loving our neighbors mm-hmm. and that if if we would want the best for our neighbor, our friend, our spouse, or whatever, is that we would want for them to put their trust in the triune God of Scripture. You know, so that would be mm-hmm. the most loving thing that you could do. So, you know, even for the people mm-hmm. who we appear on the surface and we may be uh, accused of hating, right? Uh, and the people who we might be accused of being anti or anti this or anti that, that truly, you know, that the most loving and the most pro thing that we could do for them is that we would we would preach the gospel to them in a way that uh, would make it clear to them that they need to repent. Mm-hmm. Which isn't the easiest message to get across to people. A lot of people don't like to hear that necessarily. It kind of rubs them the wrong way sometimes. Um, I did forget to put out our, our, our number for the second half hour. I asked Eddie to remind me, but he didn't do the greatest job. I'm just, just well, the half hour's not over. <laughs> That's right. So our number, if you guys want to call in, we probably got about, I don't know, six or seven minutes left before we wrap uh, for the night. If you want to reach us, 888-995-KKLA. That's 888 uh, any questions you might have about uh, tonight's topic or apologetics or the Bible in general, uh, please give us a call if you uh, 
if you're up. But uh, you were talking about love and true love for someone is wanting them to stand righteously before God, God. right? Um, Matthew 5, I think, is a great passage that kind of touches on this, and we talked about how love is rooted in the triune nature of God. Um, But in Matthew 5, just to kind of bird's eye view it real quick we have you know the beatitudes blessed are the the meek blessed are the merciful blessed are those who mourn right so it's talking about these people who are truly blessed and you know what it means is people who are truly poor in spirit who know their sin who are truly mourning over their sin who are weeping over their sin you know who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness like god's righteousness these are people after god's own heart they are blessed right it's not just someone who's sad whose football team lost the you know the championship so they're crying and it's talking about true sorrow over your sin and then it says after that that you know whoever teaches god's law that that we're to be salt and light in this world preserve it bring light to it and that those who teach god's law his commandments are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven right and those who teach others to break god's law are the least in the kingdom of heaven, right? And part of loving people, like Eddie was saying, love God, love your neighbor. You know, when when they came to Jesus, they said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus basically said, love God and love your neighbor. And all of these, on on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets, right? So if we are to love people, we are to teach them God's law according to Matthew 5, you know, verse 19. And when we teach people's God's law, that you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lust, you shouldn't commit adultery, um, which includes, you know, sexual immorality and, you know, living according to God's sh- sexual ethic, sexual standard, um, that is not always the easiest message to lovingly. Even though we're doing it out of love, a lot of people don't hear it, you know, because it goes against um, what they want to do. Their autonomy, what yeah. they want to do, what they want to do right. What they, even how it, they have, even if they're driving headed for driving hundred miles an hour headed for a cliff, right? And they're having fun listening to good music, you know. And you're just gonna, you know, rain on their parade. You know what I mean? Tell them there's a cliff ahead, right? And the, you know the you know, the the Ten Commandments begin with this idea of I'm the Lord your God who brought right, you yeah. out of bondage, bondage you know, right. out of the house of bondage, right. out of Egypt. Right. And the Ten Commandments are actually a formula for liberty. That's right. You know, Christ Himself says, you know. Uh, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and it's the truth that will set you free. Mm-hmm. You know, and later he says, "I am," or earlier I think he says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me." So there's this unity of, uh, you know, of life and truth that is embedded in the Word of God. You know, and it's this liberating thing. It liberates us from our finite understanding of reality and liberates us from the power of our physical desires. Uh, It helps us temper our physical desires so that we can use them in a way that glorifies God as opposed to a way that destroys us. And the people 
around us. Amen. Yeah, so, I mean, you've seen kind of hopefully tonight we've simply started with, you know, this presuppositional apologetic. We've moved towards the primary presupposition, which is that unless you presuppose this triune God of Scripture, you can't make sense of reality. You know, we've shown that uh, you can't even make sense of something as basic and fundamental as the law of gravity. You can't make sense of something as basic and fundamental as love outside of this triune God who reconciles the ideal with the material, right? The conceptual with and the material. And unifies diverse things. Unifies and that's a big thing right now. Everybody's talking about unity. Unity. unity by what standard? Tolerance, bringing us together. Are we unified? That's it right. has to be a transcendent standard. It mm-hmm. can't be a man-made standard, you know, because then it would be up to the majority. And it's like, well, what if pe- people disagree? Of course, we have a little bit of disagreement. Well, we shut them down. Are you silence ta- them. You think there's a little disagreement in our country right now? A little bit. About what's right and wrong? And so how is it how that we're we? going to unify each other unless there's a transcendent standard that we can form You just ourselves? shut down all those people that you disagree with. Oh, yeah. You, you just, just silence you them. You just silence them. You just take them off of your... Yeah, I get it. Cancel That's them. one world view. That's, that's, yeah, that's one <laughs> way how to get rid of people you disagree with. So we, we just wanted to say thanks for tuning in tonight. Uh, Eddie, do you have any... Any final thoughts? Any any things you want to leave our listeners with? Any any final takeaways? We're just scratching the surface here with regard to the whole idea of how the triumph God of Scripture, uh, that's revealed to us in Scripture, uh, helps us, you know, navigate reality both now and into the future. Yeah, and I just kind of add to that too. Yeah, never stop exploring God's um, triune nature. I think it's one of the most fundamental things that we can be studying and learning especially as we defend the faith Um, remember that God is infinite unchangeable, self-sufficient he created the world and he interacts intimately with us he's eternally active, eternally speaking eternally knowing and eternally loving in the activities of the persons of the Trinity he reflects and displays to us his eternal activity in his activity toward us and he loves us in Christ praise the Lord for that And uh, with that, we'll wrap it up. This is Jason with Apologetics.com. Thanks, Gabe, for being on the ones and twos. And we will see you all next Friday night at midnight. God bless.